Welcome to the Creative South Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Frostholm. My guest this week is Victor Yako. Victor is a user experience researcher working for EY Intuitive out of Philadelphia. He has written several articles for the likes of Alista Part and Smashing Magazine, and has recently written a book about user experience research called Design for the Mind, Seven Psychological Principles of Persuasive Design. We talk about how user experience research works within the context of design, the culture of alcohol in tech and agency settings, his own dealings with substance abuse, getting sober, and ways to address the underlying issues that lead to substance abuse. Victor's book, Design for the Mind, Seven Psychological Principles of Persuasive Design, will be coming out in June, and you can pick it up over at manning.com books. Creative South podcast listeners who enter the code Yako PPC at checkout will receive a 39% discount off the cover price. In case you haven't heard, our buddy Aaron James Draplin has a book titled Draplin Design Company, Pretty Much Everything, coming out May 17th, and you can pre-order it now. The pre-order of $25 is in effect right up until May 17th, so act now. Draplin's proud of the fact that this book is viciously affordable yet jam-packed with a mountain of information. Good, solid value. Act now and head over to ddcbook.com and pre-order your copy of Draplin Design Company pretty much everything today. On to the show. (laughs) Victor, thanks for joining me this morning. No problem, Jason. Thanks for taking the time to have me on the show. Yeah, not a problem. So let's just uh, kind of start off from the beginning. Tell me a little bit about yourself and where you grew up. Sure. So, well, I'm a user experience researcher, but I grew up in Maryland, sort of outside of the D.C. area. Mm -hmm. Uh, I lived there for my entire childhood. And then afterwards, uh, when I got out of high school, I found myself in central Ohio, uh, Columbus, Ohio area, which is where I Ended up going to school and getting all of my degrees from the Ohio State University, as everybody's <laughs> make sure to say. They they ended up trademarking the word the as part of their name. So did they really? While I was going to school there. I think it was an <laughs> attempt to there's something about licensing and uh differentiating themselves from Ohio University. Um so I don't know, capitalizing the word the in the Ohio State University, though, is is required. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, marketing people. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like people, when I I used to think that when I sent a resume out or something, that people would just think you know I, I accidentally capitalized the the letter. But then now it seems to be like a joke, and you'll see it like when football players are introducing themselves. I'm from the <laughs> Ohio State University. Gotcha. So when you were at the Ohio State University, <laughs> what, did, what did you study? A whole variety of things. So I ended up getting my bachelor's, master's, and PhD all from, I'm just going to say Ohio State for now. <laughs> um, That's fine. But uh, so originally I thought I would be a teacher and I really, I've always had a passion for writing and mm-hmm. um, so my bachelor's and my master's, I was focusing on teaching in language arts and social studies. And then while I was going to school to get my master's, I took a course on environmental education and environmental research. Mm -hmm. And I really realized that I had a passion around education, but also more so for research and looking at the psychology of how people learn. And so 
I ended up getting my PhD. And while I was doing that, I studied people while they were in settings like zoos, aquariums, science centers, how they learned, how they received Sound like fun field trips. Yeah, exactly. I got to take a fun field trip every day. Only I was the guy not having fun because I stood around <laughs> with a clipboard trying to insert myself in front of people while they were having their fun to say, hey, would you take this quick survey or will you speak to me for 10 minutes about some of the topics that you've come across today? Really, because a lot of these places get funding from uh, federal agencies mm -hmm. around con conservation issues. They mm -hmm. have a broader message of we should save species X or we should change our behavior around electricity consumption because of some of the greenhouse gases that are produced. And so okay. although it's more subversive in a way, they hope you don't just have a great time looking at the giraffe and looking at the eagle, but that you also learn like, oh, these are things that are worth protecting. And the way to do that is looking at my behaviors or becoming further educated. So all that is to say that I got a really good background in psychology and communication as I went through mm -hmm. school, um, getting my PhD, which really translated nicely once I had an opportunity to go into uh, user experience and, and design, which was something that wasn't even on my radar when I was in school. Uh, it, I was able to use those methods, interviewing, observation, creating surveys, creating questionnaires to understand why people do things and how and translate that into digital settings. It really, that was a very smooth transition for me. And I, mm -hmm. um, so I, that sort of brings us up to current where I've actually got a book coming out, which is on the application of psychology to design. And I've really mm -hmm. just taken all of my background in psychology and I've tried to make it something that I've done my whole career is trying to make this research and this, what can sometimes be very, uh, esoteric or lacking in application theory sure. and behavior models and saying, actually, there's a lot of value if we understand this stuff. Academics are just really bad at making it, writing and talking in a way that we understand it. But here, I can sort of be a middleman because I had one foot in academia for so long, uh -huh. and I really want this stuff to, where it's valuable to be applied because it, it is. So let me try to write about it in a way that makes sense and use examples from digital properties and what we would encounter in our everyday life. So um, I've got a book designed for the mind coming out actually hopefully in mid-May that is 10 chapters of fun all about that. Awesome. Well, and thank you for the advanced copy. I've um, no problem. not had a chance to read all of it, but I have read about half of it. Unfortunately, real life gets in the way. And <laughs> I've heard about that. I've heard heard about real life and not finding time to read. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, as we talked about before we started recording, you got a one year old. So <laughs> I appreciate you even glancing at it. I'd like to think my book has priority in most people's lives, but then I also know, know about reality. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I have a, you'd be amazed. I have a stack of books, probably not that people can see this because it's audio format, <laughs> but this high of stuff that I've been wanting to read that he's raising his hand really high, like over his head yeah. for a visual <laughs> yeah. that I um, just rarely have a chance to catch up on. So it's all the ones that, you know, our mindless readers have mm -hmm. stacked up on the floor and, I haven't had a chance to read those, but the ones that aren't so mindless, I'm uh, getting a good chance to read. 
that is like myself and so many people that I know, like our mantra going through grad school is like, when I'm done with this, I'm going to read all, all the things that I want to read, all that sort of mindless fun stuff. It just doesn't happen. You still find yourself so bogged down with like, even if you have time to read, it's like, oh, I have to read something relevant to my job for tomorrow. Or, <laughs> but or, I just got done with my job. Right. I just want to go back and turn on some reality television that doesn't make me think. So <laughs> Exactly. Well, since your book is on user experience design and kind of the psychology behind it, for those of us who aren't familiar with that, why don't you kind of fill us in a little bit? Sure. So really, it's about taking principles that probably make sense already for most people who are designers because or work on design teams because you work with things that people use. You inherently start to pick up like, oh... If I make something very clear in how to find it, people seem to respond to that better. Well, there's actually like underlying psychological principles around that, like giving people um, the perception that they have control over the outcome of what they're doing is a very powerful mm -hmm. thing. And so showing them how what they do on your, you know, if you have like a payment portal leads to the payment going through is, is a good thing in that they start to feel more control over their situation or surfacing critical information immediately. Sure. That makes sense. But why does that actually like lead to a better experience? And it's because people are using these mental shortcuts to get themselves through it, all, all the different tasks and decisions that they have to make. And how can we design experiences be more in line with how people think or Mm -hmm. If you're already doing it, a lot of what I do in my book, too, is I give you the language around how you're doing it um, in an attempt to say, like, you can sort of differentiate yourself from the pack when you talk about what you're doing by saying something beyond just, I put a like button on your feature because people really like like buttons and they like to like things. Well, instead, you could say, we know through psychology that people really like the developing community and understanding from a social perspective what their friends are doing and it makes them feel closer to others and, and you can actually explain like why putting a like button on something might be effective and so giving a voice to something that you might do intuitively to be able to explain it to a client or something exactly like that and you can is, sound a little bit smarter or you can sound like you actually do understand the underlying. And I think if you read my book and if you just dabble in a little bit of psychology, you can understand it. I don't think that people need to become psychological researchers. And I think that the purpose of my book is really practitioner focused. I would feel like I failed if people put it down and walked away and felt like it was too over their head or if it was too written, <laughs> like I'm not writing for other psychologists. I feel like I've worked on a design team for three years. I work with them every day. I know the language. I know what we struggle with in communicating to our clients and uh, that we don't want to go into a room and start talking about psychological principles for most of them. But if they hear us talking and we can back it up with some keywords and some thought around why we went ahead and did something beyond, oh, this is the way we've been doing it and it seems to work well, that it is something they'll grab onto and they'll start to use the language themselves. Uh, a lot of what I've talked about with clients is around social identity, which is one of the chapters mm -hmm. in my book. And I've also written an article for Smashing Magazine on it. But 
there's some key phrases around in-group and out-group, which is in-group are the people that are like you, and you want to do things that make you feel more like your in-group. And so if you see sure. liking things or commenting on things or going to a concert that, that are in your in-group, you're more likely to at least want to explore why that's the case. And then there's out-group. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times when I speak on this topic, I use the example of like Mac versus PC. PC is out <laughs> for people who are Mac. And you can see that in like how they dress. And that's one of the things that we do is we look at the out group, people who are not like us, and we say, what can I do to make myself even less like them? So if they're dressing in suits, I want to dress in jeans. If they're very conservative, <laughs> I want to be really liberal. If you know they're going to a concert for a folk band, I want to go to a concert for whatever music would be the opposite of folk. I should have used a different example, but um, you know what I'm saying. I, ju I just pictured a bunch of people in khakis and bad bad striped polo shirts um, going to see a John Denver cover band. I could imagine that. <laughs> that sounds fun. <laughs> so yeah, if you're not in that group, you don't want to be there. You want to do the opposite. So, uh, But I've actually heard then a lot of people after I've worked with them saying like, oh, you know, are we addressing the in-group or because there's ways of also positioning your product so that people can appeal to it can appeal to both in-group and out-group, and you can utilize it effectively to make both groups feel like they're a part of something by using your product, uh, for example. Well, yeah, if, if you're selling a product, you need to get people in the out-group into the in-group. Otherwise, that product will not be successful. That is an excellent point. <laughs> so, you know, kind of moving around that. You know, you do all this stuff with user experience. You just said you work with a team of designers. And since I come from a design background, and I know a lot of our listeners come from a design background, how does that relationship work of, you know, having a person like you who's a user experience researcher tying in with a group of designers and on a project? So I think we have it down pretty well where I work and I love my colleagues. I love designers because I don't design. Uh, they take my ideas and turn them into things that are actually fun and usable and exciting. I also have, mm -hmm. I would be remiss to not mention it, developers and engagement leads are on my teams as well. We try hard to be cross-discipline, um, <laughs> and I've been accused of forgetting about the developers. And I blame them because they're so quiet, always typing away and, and coding. But um, <laughs> really, when we first start an engagement with a, with a, uh, a client, it's research sort of leads the way. So going in and taking a look and doing an evaluation of their current properties. And I like to, from that point, immediately include my designers and saying, here's what I'm finding. Here's some of the issues. Let's talk about how you would design a solution for that. And oftentimes too, then our next step will be to interview people and maybe watch them use the product if there is currently a product. And I like mm -hmm. to have my designers right there. We used to have a process where it would be two researchers, uh, one leading the process. And like if it was interviews, one asking the questions and the other taking notes and maybe jumping in. Well, I've moved towards there's no reason my designer can't be there with me to take the notes and also have the opportunity to ask questions right away and see how people are using the product. And we found that it's really effective. And oftentimes the deliverable piece, at least from a research end, is more like we've identified these core themes that 
users are having trouble with or that users really need to make your product address all their needs, you need to account for these things, that my designers, when they understand this right away, we develop a common language around the product. We hear what their users' mm -hmm. pains are together. And then as we go into iterative design, we talk about is how is this addressing like let's say you know we need it we have a product that really lacks clarity how are we addressing increasing clarity how are we addressing surfacing this information people need immediately and then showing them what to do next and so we have this conversation that from the beginning we've started developing this shared understanding around so uh, i think it works really well and I know that not all design firms invest in research, particularly in like having <laughs> their own researcher. And where I work, we have yeah. a team of six and three of us have PhDs. And so it seems to be something that from from a sales point and from a getting clients and long-term engagements has been pretty effective. And then further along as the project uh, matures, it's like the research is usually heaviest on newer engagements where we want to say we want to mm -hmm. just come up with some like big pie in the sky concepts as well as here's some short-term fixes and the research sure. will inform that but when, let's say you know we get the long-term deal and we start designing out a product for somebody uh -huh. then research usually um, on a pretty frequent schedule that you said at the beginning we'll do um, usability testing on a regular basis so if you know we're releasing a set of features, we've tested them and made some tweaks before they actually go live and say it's like every couple of design sprints or something when, when features are ready to be tested. So we stay involved okay. and um, it seems to work out pretty well. And I, I advocate for it at least for somewhat regular usability testing because when you don't, you get start to see these problems and you get feedback from your clients and you're like, why didn't we account for this? We have... UX designers on the job, <laughs> you're supposed to know how people think and immediately understand what to do with the design. And it's like, that's true to an extent, but that's not really like, you're still basing things on assumptions. And if you're not going to yeah. get out there and get some feedback from the users and see what their assumptions are, it's going to be hard to meet in the middle every time and do it perfectly. Yeah, research and design doesn't mean mind reader. Exactly. That's great. That's and and I think at least from my experience I've seen where clients do assume that, you know. Well, I've got a designer oh, yeah. who knows UX, who why why would I need to do the research piece? You know people, right? Well, I I think it's a lot because clients don't come from that background, so they don't understand it, so they are putting their own assumptions on the people that they're working with of they deal with, you know, the designer and the UX researcher and all these people, they deal with it every day. So they know exactly what to do. Why didn't they get it right on the first time? Right. And, you know, and part of it is they've got a lot of money invested oh. and that makes them nervous. And yeah, understandably so. Definitely. And and I, I understand that. And as I've matured with dealing with clients that it's something you can start to address immediately. It's like, this won't slow things down. We can do it very quickly and it won't make your budget explode exponentially. And, you know, there's arguments that, well, if you fix the problems now, you're not going to have to pay for it in the future when you're trying to fix them later. So it's, it's about communicating and showing the value, which I totally understand. I mean, it's money in the end. People are spending yeah. time. Now, now, if we could just find a way to convince them that 
A, the logo doesn't need to be bigger. <laughs> when you say make it pop, that's not a thing. Uh, <laughs> How about more space? What, what other cliches can we What other cliches can we come more up with? More space for marketing. You hear that? <laughs> that's what the yeah. marketing team wants. Where, yeah. where can we cross sell? You know, I'm I'm at my day job. I'm on the mar- well. I am the marketing team. What am I saying? <laughs> so I, you know, I, I'm you know the designer and the creative in house, and I do all of the public facing marketing and advertising and PR and all that stuff. Um, and and I work with a bunch of engineers. So you know, these are you know mechanical and electrical and all that stuff. So making them understand, you know. <clears throat> I didn't just arbitrarily choose this color. You know, this is there there is a psychology behind right. it. This is also within our brand standards. We don't need to deviate too far away from that. Do you find that and, the that engineers have like a a true passion about understanding the logic behind the design decisions? Absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> they uh could care less about it. Uh, and especially the marketing okay. that just gets in the way of them uh, being able to do their engineering. Right. Get out of my way, marketer. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> I we, I won't say it. <laughs> I'll tell you off air. I'd like to keep my job in case somebody listens. Okay, okay. <laughs> we won't go further down that line of questioning. <laughs> yeah, I can understand. So, that. yeah, it, I mean, there are some who get it, um, and they tend to be more of the sales based ones. Okay. Um, versus the ones who are in the trenches with the actual design process on engineering, which is funny. I've you know, I've been there for four years, so I've kind of learned to adapt to explaining things to them. Right through, you know, when I'm designing something in this, it's the equivalent to you designing something here. You know, it takes because you know, they don't understand time frame either. <laughs> it was like, yeah. it takes me as long to do this as it takes you to do this. I don't just push a button. <laughs> you don't just I was like things around and make it happen. But if I start explaining, you know, if I don't put this here, then the whole thing kind of comes down. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, if I can explain it in somewhat engineering terms and then they tend to understand it more. That makes sense. I would imagine engineers can grasp like systems thinking and, and understanding, well, if I change something here, it impacts something over there that at least there's that level of common language uh, around things. Oh yeah. And I, I would think I would be much better at it by now because my dad was a mechanical engineer. So, <laughs> but he kind of turned that off a little bit at home aside from the very logic based thinking. <laughs> so, um, so your company is intuitive and you um, you do all this user research experience design, and you said you have six on staff? Yeah, we have six and growing, growing exponentially at some point. <laughs> so, and, but, and you, you, you're not in a huge market, though. Well, we're- so how does, I mean, it's a good size market, but it's not like massive. Geographically or just in terms of what we do? Uh, geographically. Okay. Well, yeah, we're in we're in Philadelphia, but I mean, our clients are national and international. So, mm-hmm. our principals, their background is in banking and financials, so they've got a decent reputation. And their uh, our clients have been, you know, banks from West Coast to East Coast and Midwest and South, and 
um, even some work over in Europe and London. But as we've grown and as word of mouth has been really positive, it's it's made it to where we've been able to not just stay in banking. And so we have a lot of different clients in, throughout industries, telecommunications, museums, even universities. So we, I think that the growth, you know, is probably something that upfront happened a lot faster. So it's a company that's about 10 years old. And so okay. going from three people to 30 is, is in a few years is pretty big. And now it's up to about 50. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, and where I was going with that is, so I'm in Mobile, Alabama. Um, we are a fairly small market. I mean, the city itself is a couple hundred thousand people. And then surrounding area, if you go from Biloxi over to Pensacola and up north a little bit, gets close to a million. Okay. Um, so it's not like, you know, podunk small town that, you know, in the Catskills that nobody's ever heard of. But it's also not a huge market. And and getting people with your type of background to work in this type of market seems to be a challenge or or not thought of because um, I honestly I don't I don't know of a single use user researcher or user experience researcher in the area um, and I had heard of it a little bit before you reached out to me but I didn't know a ton about okay. it so um, for those of us who are in areas and don't get into it. How do we reach out to someone and wh where do you find people who have that understanding sure. and, and make that more accessible all around? Sure. Well, first, I, I would say that while I'm sure that geography and, and company size might have some to do with it, that I think in our field, at least in design, a lot of it is the fact that as a codified sort of job, Still sure. a young field, and I think a lot of designers have been burdened with the task of doing their own research, and mm -hmm. and the expectation, and, and that's kind of where I was going with that. Is that like okay, you're going to go test your own designs, you're going to go find out how the user thinks, and so maybe it's a luxury of having a slightly larger company, or maybe it's just a different sort of way of thinking about it that has been implemented in some areas, but having someone de dedicated to the role of just engaging in the research uh, is something that I, I, when we were talking a little bit earlier that I think is a, a differentiator. Um, but mm -hmm. so, but finding people with that skill set, I think there's a lot of, I've, from what I've seen, a lot of people that do independent consulting work because research might not be something where you think, oh, I want this person involved in the day-to-day -day throughout the life of a project, which I think there's benefit to having that. But saying like mm -hmm. up front, there's real benefit to getting in there, digging around, having someone dedicated to understanding a product and, and reporting out some findings. Like I said, working with the designers. Uh, I think that designers have a lot of tasks and duties to do in their time that becoming an expert on research and an expert on translating findings into 
recommendations is a lot to ask of somebody. And it takes years of just focusing on that to become really comfortable with doing it. And on top of whatever you're being asked to design seems overwhelming to me. Well, and, and, you know, in today's economy, you said designers have a lot burden on them. I know, and I'm sure it's not just designers, but this is speaking from my own experience. You know, I, I went to school for graphic design. Now, 90% of my job is marketing strategy and positioning. And, you know, maybe 10% of my job is actual design. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, part of that is just, you know, the further along you move in your career, you do things like that too. But with the kind of shrinking economy of the business wants to save as much money. So they're going to try to hire bond people who are jack of all trades. Mm-hmm. Um, you get to a, I don't know, a tipping point where you can't do everything. And it's, I, I think it would be very helpful. And just, just in the, you know, what, 20, 30 minutes that we've been talking, I'm like thinking of how do I get this where I can implement this in because a user research experience designer or user experience researcher um, could be beneficial in more than just design. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it, it could help build out, you know, the full marketing team of, you know, you're looking at the principles beyond this. And this is how you can implement it. And these are ways and A-B testing and all those yeah, things. Yeah, and it's almost like you can look at business strategy as well within mm-hmm. there and say, well, if we're going to do this, how does it impact? Like, how do we implement it as well? We need to understand what our users are going to think when we unroll a new product. Or if it's internal, like how do we get organizational buy-in? A lot of times when we work with clients – we also have to talk to them about like, this is really about also implementing institutional change and what's a good strategy around that. What are, we've interviewed Mm. your, your stakeholders, we've interviewed all your product owners and they have really strong thoughts around not just redesigning, but the actual direction of the product. How do we talk to them about that? So I see a big value in it. And something else is, Again, I don't think that it's like even unique to your situation in in your geography that user experience research is something that is not necessarily um, considered a separate skill set is that when we have when we hire people, when we have interviews, uh, we do get a lot of applicants who are really like that designer that sits with one side one leg on each side of the fence and it's like well we actually Mm -hmm. want someone who's really pure research who can talk and work with designers not just someone who is a designer who has occasionally done usability testing and and so that can be confusing i think just in general to the market which is like oh you're looking for someone Mm -hmm. with like a psychology or an anthropology or sociology or human computer interaction background who is really mm-hmm. just used to working with people, not so much working in Adobe and, and moving things and creating workflows, but actually trying to understand then the logic underlying that. Sure. I think that may be one of those places where, and this could sound terribly narcissistic to say, <laughs> I, you know, I going through college, when I got in college, I knew that I wanted to do something art related. Mm-hmm. Um, I, when I first got in college, I wanted to do advertising and I was all about doing advertising and 
you know, then I discovered beer girls and fraternity and that <laughs> took a sidetrack. But I took, yeah. But in those, you know, everybody starts college, you got to take all those core classes that you're like, why the heck am I taking mm-hmm. those? But the ones that interested me the most out of everything were I took a few anthropology classes. I took some psychology classes. I took some sociology classes and I really understood that. And I think, you know, when, cause I've got a degree in, you know, graphic design and my minors, my minors were in marketing and communication. And on the marketing side of things, there were a lot of sociology uh-huh. and, psychology classes that were around business psychology and business sociology. And I took those, but I was always taking an anthropology class or something like that. So it, I think for me, it kind of helped me understand that. So I, I, without, <laughs> without realizing I, I was getting in a background in something like that. So that was, yeah. And it's, something I think, that, I think that's been helpful. I, Sorry, no, go ahead. I was just agreeing with you and saying that even having that sort of, the academic knowledge of these topics exist and they, why do they relate to design in any way is something that's beneficial understanding. Like this is human behavior. This is understanding why people make decisions and, and some of that psychology around that can be really powerful. Yeah. And well, and I think, you know, when people are going to school, I, I think it would be nice for, especially if you're a graphic design major, you're going to be working with people in an environment doing something. It's not, it's not painting. It's not, there's objectivity to it. So you need to be able to understand other people's points of view. So Mm -hmm. I I think it would be beneficial, you know, when it comes to design theory and things like that classes to teach why you do things, not just, I don't know, you know, you know, with color theory, there's, these colors go together, but it's, there's no psychology behind Mm -hmm. very little psychology in those classes of why these colors tend to work better in people's minds than others. And you, you could do a lot of that in teaching design as well. And I think that might help people when they get into the real world, working with someone like you of being able to communicate and relate. I agree. Yeah. I mean, I'm all for being well-rounded and I, I myself could do a better job of, understanding design at times i think and so it's something that yeah we're weird arty people i know (laughs) i respect (laughs) that though because it's very refreshing i love how the designers that i work with and the developers that i work with really take on challenges it's very problem solving based thinking like how do i design an experience that's going to address somebody's needs and (laughs) get excited about that and then watch them as they don't just copy and paste what they tried last week and work somewhere else, <laughs> but actually, you know, come up with something from scratch that then we can start working the kinks out of as we go towards going into a development and release. Yeah. Well, let's kind of switch gears real all quick, right. if you're all right with that. Sounds good. Um, and we'll talk about, you know, when we initially talked, uh, what's well, been a couple months yeah. now, Real quickly, we talked about some of the articles that you had written on, you know, like agency life and um, design culture and the background that goes to that that can create challenges for people. Definitely. Um, you know, what was it? You wrote a couple articles on Vox and uh, there was one other one. Uh, there's a model view culture article where okay. I talk about some of my experience. So, yeah, I mean, 
I've been really vocal the last year or so that I had, and I do struggle with alcohol abuse issues. And mm-hmm. that's something that is, is true throughout my entire adulthood life. So when I decided I needed to become sober, which was two years ago, I started experiencing just massive success, at least according to my definition of success, which at the time was <laughs> getting up off the damn floor and doing something with myself. But, you know, even though I, Hey, baby steps. Yes, exactly. Uh, you know, that thing about hitting bottom is true and your bottom can be wherever you decide it is. But uh, mm-hmm. for me, it was feeling pretty much like I just couldn't go on with doing what I was doing the way I was doing it. Uh, drinking way too much until I was blacking out on a regular basis and just feeling all around like my best was very much being hampered by my lifestyle. So, but that was a symptom of something I'd been doing for years and years. And it wasn't something that I put any blame on design or agency life. But when I achieved sobriety and I started to look around and say, I'm being very successful in what I'm doing. Part of that was like, writing a lot of articles around psychology and design. Part of that was getting a book Mm -hmm. deal. Bigger part of that was uh, getting married and having a baby and having a life that (laughs) is um, acceptable to those two things and not opposed to those two things. Yeah. But I realized that while it might not have made, made the problem or created the problem that the culture where I work and the culture among the agencies that I floated around in and ran in circles with their uh, employees and the events I attend that are focused on design and and agency as it certainly didn't help with trying to maintain sobriety Um, that there's a very much alcohol use and it's from whining and dining our clients to celebrations for for winning work or doing good work to just having the office keg and a beer fridge and the expectation that there is no deterrent to having a beer at your desk. And these were all things I was taking advantage of and very happy about um, when I was consuming alcohol. And I just realized that through my writing, I was starting to develop a voice and, and I wanted to do a little bit more and go beyond just saying, here's how you apply psychology to design. I wanted to start to say, I'm feeling like as I achieve more success and become more comfortable with myself, I really want to look at and say, if there's other people who are experiencing a similar situation that I was, and they have the ability to start living this life that they could start to feel more self-worth and like they're accomplishing the things they want to, I want to use my voice in some way that I can at least try to make the situation a little more accepting or a little more responsive to their needs. And so Mm -hmm. I didn't come out and say prohibition. We have to stop serving alcohol. (laughs) I never want to see another person around me with a beer. This is gross. Like I'm trying to take the approach of, I think we can coexist. Like I think people who there's a lot of reasons. And this is something that really surprised me when I started writing, uh, when I published the model view culture article and then followed up with the box.com was that, people felt comfortable reaching out to me and saying, 
I struggle with alcohol, but it's not about the consumption. It's about being around it. I'm really uncomfortable maybe due to some life history stuff with relatives. Mm-hmm. I'm really uncomfortable because I'm on medication. I'm really uncomfortable because any reason. And, and it was surprising to me because I thought too, very selfishly, like, oh, this is for people like me that I'm going to write about people who experience sobriety or, or trying to experience sobriety and what their situation feels like. But see, hearing people say, well, I'm just not comfortable being around it because maybe I had a drunk uncle who I have really bad memories of, that surprised me. And I thought, well, there's a lot going on here. And I'd like to see situations where we can all still be at the same event, but not have anybody feeling either like they're pressured to drink or like they have to have an excuse why they don't, why they're not drinking. And that event can Mm -hmm. even be at a bar. I mean, for me, I'm comfortable sitting at a bar. I don't, I can't speak for every person who feels like they're recovering from abusing alcohol or whatever. But for me, I can sit in a bar with a client and drink seltzer water, the colder, the better. And I'm perfectly fine. I just... (laughs) Okay, I don't understand how you can drink seltzer water, but <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I, the colder, the better. So maybe I just need my tongue to be numb first. But it's <laughs> there you go. The, the bubbles and the sparkle to it really enhance uh, the experience over still water. Um, so my my point though is then in my articles, I wasn't coming out and saying I was coming out and saying we have a culture that promotes alcohol use. And I think it would be you'd be hard pressed to argue against that. And if you look on Facebook, if you look on a lot of the websites for agencies, they highlight the fact that we have an office keg, we have parties. It's it's meant to promote. You go to a conference and there's an open bar. Yeah, and, yeah. exactly. And so then my rebuttal to that is not to take it away, but to say, okay, I think we need to have some some messaging around it. I think we need to say it's perfectly cool to be at this event and still be sober, that we're not going to play mm-hmm. like the drink police and come around and ask you why you're not drinking. As individuals, we need to not ask people why they're not drinking, even if it's our coworkers. Because, and, and I've started actually presenting on this as well, which is really exciting to me because – I'm sort of an attention hound. Um, there's worse. There's a worse <laughs> word that I would have used, but I'll keep it PG for the show. Um, I, and you can say whatever you want. Right, uh, <laughs> it's not that I'm so much of an attention whore that I am only doing it for the attention, but I feel like if somebody is going to have a voice about this issue, it might as well be me at this point. Um, mm. I, you know, you put that you dip your toe out there and if you don't get it chopped off, I guess you stick the rest of your foot in. Well, my biggest fear was yeah. I'll just get fired the second I write this article and it goes live and that didn't happen. So I'm like, well, okay, I guess I'm going to keep talking about it. But so I'm presenting like in a week, I'm presenting at a conference in Minneapolis. Uh, and then I'm also presenting at Drexel university um, on, and I've presented at work, but it's really about like, giving people some small things that they can do as individuals and then also talking about, well, if you plan events, here are some things you can do. And if you own or manage people at, at an agency, here are some things you do. But it's so simple, Jason. And it's like, don't ask people why they're not drinking because the best the best answer you could get would be like, because I'm pregnant, because I'm on antipsychotic medication, because I'm an alcoholic yeah. and I'm really scared of what's going to happen if I have this first drink. Like, I, I see it all the time. It's I know it's more of an icebreaker. And only one of those is a cool answer. Exactly. <laughs> congratulations, exactly. you're pregnant. And that might not be There's the no same. congratulations, you're an antipsychotic. Right, exactly. <laughs> right. 
And so what are we hoping people say? And I understand, too, it's like more of an icebreaker. We don't put a lot of thought into why am I asking this person why they're not drinking. But coming at it from my perspective or the perspective of someone who wants to attend an event but feel comfortable, it does come across differently. And if you're somebody who is just choosing not to drink for a night because you're per- but you're perfectly fine with your relationship with alcohol, that that's mm-hmm. different. But somebody who struggles with alcohol or doesn't want to have the cat out of the bag on their pregnancy, they feel like there's spotlights on them when you ask them that. So what, let's talk right. about something different and just putting that out there, I think, and, and having whoever's throwing the event say, you know, we still want you to come. It's an event at a bar. But if you're drinking ice cold seltzer water, you know, there's going to be a lot of guys like Victor there and still come, still have a good time. Like just making it a, a situation where we say the the focus is not on drinking. It's on socializing. The focus is not on drinking. It's on bowling. Drinks will mm-hmm. be there, but we really want everyone to be there. And, and I think that would do a world of difference. And whether we know it or not, we just have to be conscious of how we talk about it. Yeah. And I mean, I, so I'm someone I, I drink. Mm-hmm. I'm not a big drinker, but yeah, I'll have a beer or two and, you know, but generally that's like maybe once, twice a week. It and that's and then I'll go through long stretches where I don't have mm-hmm. anything. But I I always get uncomfortable when I go to events and they have that open bar. And you know, if, if for some reason I don't feel like drinking or if or on the reverse side where I see someone who is just doesn't know that moderation yeah. level and, and it, and they're not always alcoholics. Sometimes they're just people who I don't know what the proper term. They're binge drinkers yeah, sure. that will go for months, but the minute something's opened in front of them, they're they they don't drink just to have a drink. Yeah. They well, there was my dad who never ever drank, but he can't say no to free, so he has to throw down as many free drinks as he can, and then he gets sick. But um. Yeah, no, I think that <laughs> my my personal situation was I was a problematic drinker multiple times a week. But mm-hmm. the type of person you're talking about, too, though, yeah, and I'll let you – I'll throw it back to you to finish your story. But absolutely, just like a binge drinker who maybe can't stop at one or two once they start, they've got to go to eight or ten. Yeah, and, and so with me, when I see that situation – that makes me uncomfortable because I'm, you know, <laughs> as we talked earlier, I am not a native Southerner. I, but I have been down, well, I've been down below the Mason Dixon line for close to 30 years now, but I've been um, in Mobile itself for 20 years. And especially in the South, because there's, we're in the Bible Belt, mm-hmm. there's that strong Southern Baptist mentality of, we either don't drink in public where people can see us because they will judge mm. us or we don't drink at all and we're going to judge other people from drinking. There's a lot of people who ride that fine line of they they never learn to drink responsibly right. either. So when they go out, they just get shit faced. And now they may not drink for another six months after that. But come the Christmas party, they're the one who's, you know, puking in the elevator on the way down, you know, or passed out in the bathroom crying. I'm chuckling, but it's it's, sad. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's sad. It's it's funny to in the moment to see it because you're like that idiot. Mm -hmm. But in the overall picture, it's sad to see something like that. And I 
I think from my point of view that that makes me uncomfortable. It's seeing someone who can handle that. You know, I don't mind. I enjoy going to an event that has drinks, especially if they're free and I don't have to pay for them because I have kids and drinks are expensive. Uh, (laughs) So, you know, but I lost my train of thought with that, but it's nice to see someone talk about it in a way that's not like, Especially down here in the Bible Belt, where it's this overwhelming pressure of drinking is bad. You should never mm-hmm. do it. And I, I, I think that's kind of what I gained from yours is you're not taking that point of view. It's like, no, if you can drink responsibly, if you can handle it, that's fine. Just don't put the pressure on me to, you know, say, why aren't you drinking? Because that makes it uncomfortable for me. Yeah, exactly. And I think that that's, that's perfectly summarizes pretty much my main takeaway which is i don't i I believe individuals have alcohol is something that we all have to sort of have our relationship with whatever Mm -hmm. we feel for closet drinkers if we're out in public or if we are perfectly fine with having two drinks and occasionally not having any that's all up to the individual and it's nothing i ever would want to police but just having an event where you, yeah, you'll have the person who, who goes off on a binge and, and what can we do to take some of the pressure off, maybe reduce the likelihood of that person um, doing that. And I had a suggestion from a colleague when I presented at work, which was like, we could think more about like, so if you're not comfortable just saying I'm not drinking, what are some other options? Like, Oh, I could be the designated driver and things like that saying like, we might need designated drivers for this event who wants to volunteer. And that actually somebody who would mm-hmm. perhaps typically be the person who gets out of control and they know it can then say, well, I'll do, I'll be designated driver tonight. I can still be around everybody. I can still have the fun and I can have a reason to say no to drinks. And so what mm-hmm. are just some things, thoughts we can give to options like that for people who, because when you see that person puking or crying, they're also, um, they're doing things that are going to have a lot longer impact potentially than just Mm -hmm. that night, you know, are they drunk texting their boss? Are they hooking up with somebody they shouldn't be? Are they just making a terrible impression among their colleagues and they're not going to get that next client or that next piece of work because sure it was funny at the time but now we're all like uh, are you the person that we want to have in charge of a project so how do we get yeah. people out of situations and another thing i bring up in my talk is that you know, binge drinking as the center for disease control defines it is like five drinks for a guy in two hours but they've actually found <laughs> when they look at the numbers that the average for a binge is more like eight drinks and it doesn't matter if it's male or female. And so when you think about somebody consuming eight drinks in two hours, their decision making after that two hour binge is not going to be good. You don't do eight drinks and then make the best decisions of your life. And unfortunately you can make some that really impact the rest of your life. So how do we reduce that likelihood is, is something that I try to raise. Um, And and again, I just want to take an approach that feels more inclusive I don't want people to feel bad for serving alcohol. I just want people to put some thought behind it and say that we ha- we do have a culture in design and technology mm-hmm. where the assumption is that a lot of places alcohol is going to be available. You know, open keg at work, beer fridge, whatever, that if you have a drink at your desk at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, it doesn't stick out in any kind of way, at least where I'm at. And 
where I've been. <laughs> would it, it would where I'm okay. at. But. Uh, and I think. <laughs> but I, ha- I mean, I will say I've worked at agencies in places where that wouldn't stand mm-hmm. out. So, and a lot of it is like you want to you want to give this perception that we're not the stuffy business we're working with. So if we're working for bankers, we want them to come here and have fun and feel like you know we it's a breath of fresh air to come out to your office and review our designs with you guys and have a beer at, during work hours. Mm-hmm. Like I get that mentality and I get that design and tech skews very young and we have to stay hip in our environments that we create for people to work in and want them to stay. But we also grow up and we also have to realize that you know, there's a lot of responsibility that comes with, with things like that. And and are we doing everything sure. we can to make sure that people as they age and realize, Oh, maybe I don't have such a healthy relationship with alcohol that we're accounting for that. Or I don't really want to be around people who are drinking all day long. How are we going to account for that? Yeah. Well, to kind of get a little personal on that, you know, generally when someone has a substance abuse problem, there's underlying issues. How did you, I'm I'm assuming that that probably was the case with you. And I'm putting that on you having somewhat of an addictive personality myself. Um, And I mean, and thankfully I don't have that relationship with drugs or alcohol, but I I can recognize those things in myself and I kind of self-control. Mm-hmm. How did you deal with those underlying issues while getting sober? Cause I can imagine that leaves you pretty raw at that point mm-hmm. and then trying to do that. Yeah. So the beautiful thing that I found was that starting to deal, starting to deal with the alcohol allowed me to start addressing the underlying issues because I was originally, um, deflecting that by always creating havoc through what I would do drinking. So why deal mm. with the deeper core? What is my problem in life when I'm still dealing with, you know, the fact that I drunk texted somebody that I hate them the night before. So <laughs> you, it's hard as heck to come off of a substance or to change even these small behavior changes are so difficult and coming at it from a psychological perspective, like we don't, we're not honest enough with people about how hard it is to change your behavior, even if it's something like using our newly redesigned product. But once I started to realize, you know, I could do sobriety, I worked with counselors and uh, just a lot of, you know, my issues are just around, I guess an underlying anger and dissatisfaction and sort of level of melancholy that I have and need to address. Um, I grew up in a family with a lot of mental illness and it just sort of something that uh, became instilled in me, not the mental illness, but like the being very fearful of being exposed around that and um, Mm -hmm. trying to always sort of, put on this perception of everything's okay. So those are all things that I could start to deal with once I could stop dealing with like, why did I smash the TV for no reason? Which, you know, horribly enough are (laughs) things that I can admit to doing as a drunk person. Why did I drink till I black out? And now I have a headache and don't remember where I parked my car. Like when you don't have to wake up and deal with that, you can start to deal with the actual crap in your life about 
why, mm-hmm. you know, and a lot of it for me at least is about asking why and then trying to understand it. Why does it make me angry when this happens? But what is it that I feel like I'm losing out on or what is it that I want to accomplish? And so drinking was just like a way of quieting those questions and passing out. Mm-hmm. And I can remember on a daily basis that as I drank and as I would get more drunk, I would lose my sort of full speed ahead pressure to accomplish things. And maybe it was like this moment of relaxation, but then it would turn into a moment of regret, which was, well, I'm too drunk to do anything now. And I have all these so things. I might I as well have another do. drink. Yeah. And it's like, I'll start this thing. I'll start writing tomorrow because I'll get less drunk. Mm-hmm. I'll just get to that drunk point where I'm creative. And it's like, no, no, sorry. Beer number two might as well be beer number eight and then so on because I just couldn't stop and I would drink as fast as possible too. So I've really never, as a person who abused alcohol for 14 or 15 years, I've never experienced that buzz that people talk about. Like I would go from slight buzz, this feels wonderful, to oh shit, I'm too drunk to do anything about it. And so... (laughs) Yeah, you know, drinking isn't right for me. But to your point and to your question, like, yeah, I had to stop drinking and that was hard as heck. And I had to find support and I went to support group meetings and I had counselors, I had multiple counselors and it was super expensive, but it was probably about as expensive as drinking nonstop craft beer, uh, being like hooked up to a craft beer <laughs> IV, which was what I was doing before. And it was worth it. Well, at least you had good taste. Oh, uh, yeah, I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> I should have kept a list of what I was drinking. But um, <laughs> the the sobriety has really allowed me to start addressing that. And it wasn't easy. And I mean, sobriety still isn't easy. I recently wrote a reflection on two years of sobriety. And one of the things that I mention is um, you start to feel nostalgic about drinking. And that in itself is dangerous. So... I don't feel this where I used to feel like every day was another day of like running from this thing, this drunk monster that was going to catch me and make me drink again. I wake up now and I don't think about drinking right off the bat. Sometimes I don't think about drinking all day, but then I'll smell Mm. beer or I'll see, I'll hear a song or think about baseball, you know, things that are like fun that you should have a beer in your hand while you do. And I'll be like, Oh man, it was so great. And it really wasn't. It never was not for me. Um, that yeah. this nostalgic memory is, is actually false. So two things on that one, do you still have, and, and, and do you, so I used to mm-hmm. smoke. Um, and now if I smell a cigarette, it's like, why the hell did I ever do that? But I will still have dreams about smoking and it feels so satisfying. <laughs> do you, do you, and then I wake up, I'm like, why was I dreaming about that? <laughs> I was like, no, but do you have those kind of things with drinking sometimes? Yeah. And sometimes though, when it feels too real, like if it's a dream, I then get scared Mm -hmm. and disappointed with myself too. Like that, that. I'm the same way. And mine's just revolving around a cigarette generally, but (laughs) I'm an ex smoker too. So I can relate to that. But fortunately I quit smoking (laughs) before drinking because it would have been way too hard to do both. But, um, I did quit smoking. That's impressive because I know most people, uh, most people I know when they're going out drinking, they tend to increase their. Smoking. Yeah, no, I, I was able to get rid of that. But it's like, yeah, so <sighs> that and even like daydreaming like, oh, it would be, you know, everyone else around me has got a cup of beer and I, I could do that. 
Yeah. Well, so I have a friend who's sober and has been for, I don't know, probably five, six Uh years now. Um, and, And I knew him in his drinking days and I know him now. And, and I'll get back to what my point is with this, but he recently took a trip to Europe and he came back and I asked him how the trip was. He's like, well, it would have been great, except for some reason, my brain just went into active of, oh, wouldn't it be nice to be sitting here with a glass of wine or wouldn't it be nice to be sitting here with uh-huh. beer the entire time? So I ended up just kind of beating myself up the entire time of why do you get out? <laughs> why are you thinking about that? You haven't had a drink in forever. You really haven't thought about it in forever. And now you're doing this and it's popping yeah. in your head. So, but I, getting back to what my point was with that was, you know, he, when he gets nostalgic about it, you know, he always tries to find something to deflect and it it's, he's, he's constantly searching for something to fill that void, um, but do it in a more productive way. Has, has that been something that you've experienced absolutely i mean that that sums it up pretty perfectly is that i think that you whether you mentioned having an addictive personality it seems like mm. there are things that you you definitely need to fill that time i mean you can't go from thinking about something nonstop and wanting to do something nonstop to like oh, i'm done with that and so for me a lot of that has been around writing and i would say that's why i've been able to push so much stuff out is like i'm using all this energy I used to burn on drinking. I'm Mm. transferring it to that. I'm transferring it to doing, being the best I can at work and also trying to be the best I can for my family. But you really do, I think, need to find something and it needs to be healthy, obviously, in terms of mental health and in terms of physical health for replacing what you spent all that time on your addiction. And and I think that as part of any recovery program, you would want to help someone or find a way to start identifying where where these potential things are. Because I would think that someone with an addiction has the, the ability to focus on something, right? I mean, you're able to focus Mm -hmm. on alcohol use all day long, so why not turn that try to turn that into something more constructive? Focus it on running or your family or charity drives that you can start to harness this thing that you have that's an issue in some areas of your life mm-hmm. and maybe make a positive difference. Um, but yeah, the, the general thought of like I'm doing something all day long or I'm thinking about it and I'm fixated on it, you have to replace that. I don't see how you couldn't other than some yeah. kind of medication that would like block off some chemical that's leading to that fixation. And I don't know that that would be. Well, I think that's another form of addiction. So it's like, (laughs) or an unhealthy form of addiction. uh, You need to address that. I think in any kind of recovery program, um, strongly advocate that finding something else to replace your time on. Gotcha. So, you know, kind of going into that, I, substance abuse can certainly affect relationships in your job. How did you address that? Cause I imagine that was a, especially with work, a big fear, you know, you said you've been sober two years, you're married, you've got a one-year-old. And so I imagine personally a, that affected your relationship with your wife, but 
obviously, you know, she loved you enough to stick that through and not quit on you. So, you know, you've got those. But when you're I, for me, I think the scarier thing would be worrying about telling someone who I don't have a close relationship with of, hey, I've got this issue. I need to address it. And I need you to be supportive. Definitely. So so one of the things that I did was I didn't tell anybody. And so that's something mm-hmm. that I would not advocate doing. Um, but <laughs> so you need to have that sort of support in the beginning. And I went through that in an anonymous way, um, using counselors and using Alcoholics Anonymous. But then when I decided to publish, I knew I would have to be public about it. I knew I'd have to talk to... Um, my boss at work because number one, I was going to have this article out in a public forum, but then also I really mm-hmm. wanted to, I wanted to associate myself with my company. Um, and I felt like because mm-hmm. the piece I was writing was going to be talking about the potential, um, addressing it, the culture. <laughs> Sorry if you hear the baby crying in the background. That was so distracting. It's, All right. It's cute. a new location. So anyway, the, the fact that I was writing an article about the culture in our field, I wanted to have my employer support the fact that I was writing the article. And so the day, mm-hmm. the week before my first article was set to come out was the first time I decided to talk about it to anybody at work. And I pulled one of the principals aside and somebody that I felt like I had a pretty trusting relationship with. And I told him like, this article is going to be coming out. And is there a way for me to say, you know, I'm Victor from intuitive company and you guys will be okay with that. And and I had an interesting conversation with him because first he told me that his mind was completely blown that I had struggled with any kind of addiction issue that he couldn't believe he had worked with me for that long and had no idea that there was an issue. And so uh, that was really eye opening to me because he felt like, mm-hmm. I mean, the way he conveyed it to me was like, what kind of a, what kind of a boss am I if I can stand next to you and sit next to you and not know you're going through these issues. And to me, it really highlighted just how, how personal uh, addiction is and how you try to hide it and you try to like mm-hmm. push it to the side and, and wear this happy face. And for me, I was also surprised. Well, and you, and you get really good at hiding those things. Yeah. And, and I was surprised because at the time, you know, I thought I was glowing red with addiction. Like I thought that I stuck <laughs> out, you know, Oh, Victor's, hung over today he's only being 30 percent as productive as he could be but it you know as it turns out i guess i was a decent faker or was able to people had expectations and i was meeting whatever small expectations they had so mm-hmm. but he, he the point is that he was supportive and he was like yeah we definitely want to align ourselves with this issue the way you're putting it forth and you know we also want to talk about how we can make some changes here at work and so from there, then the article came out the, and it was really, it was much more, uh, I guess, widely distributed than I thought it would be. And mm-hmm. I was sort of nervous. Of course, at first I was nervous I would just get fired, but I was over that by the time I'd had the conversation with our principal um, afterwards. But then 
I didn't know how the industry or how my peers would take it. You know, oh, you're a crybaby. You can't hold your alcohol and you're trying to ruin it for the rest of us. And at least to my face and to my email box, um, that wasn't the case at all. That It was just well-received and people thought this is an important issue to think about. I got a lot of emails from people saying, you know, this is an article like yours should be handed to people as they're entering Silicon Valley to work or whatever. Like this is something that we should mm-hmm. at least have an awareness of. You describe the culture pretty well and, um, you know, thanks for thinking about some solutions. So uh, that was really the point where it became more widely known though, that I struggled with sobriety. And so I, I don't think for, that I can see at least on the surface that where it's like impacted me negatively to have that, knowledge out there, but I can certainly understand now, like I've hit this different place where like, if you saw me at a party with a beer in my hand, you'd say, what the hell's going on? Right. And Mm -hmm. if my boss saw me getting beer out of the keg at work, I would expect then that their next thought might be, are we going to have to monitor Victor's productivity? Like, so I've put myself in a situation by being vocal where I also now have to be accountable. And in some ways that's good because then I'm like more likely to be accountable. Um, But in other ways, the the thing you hear the most about people with substance abuse problems is relapsing. Uh, I mean, it's a very frequent Mm -hmm. and I don't, have any intention to do that. And I'm sure that most people that do. Well, I don't think that. anybody goes into it, has the intention. To exactly. Do it. Um, so, you know, I, I can't speak for what, what everything in the future will hold, but my hope is that I can keep talking about it and being vocal about it. And the people who suffer, whatever word you want to use, the people who also experience issues with abuse or with not really wanting to be around, alcohol consumption at at high levels that I can be something of a voice for them if they don't feel comfortable speaking out um, publicly about it. Gotcha. Well, real quickly, I want to ask one more question about this and then I'll kind of wrap things up and set you free in a while. Any questions? So, so being that you have a PhD in user experience research and all that, I would imagine you have a fairly, analytical mind and you know to get a phd you got to be fairly smart um (laughs) i'm not not completely (laughs) your wife may argue with that (laughs) so there's all kinds of smarts i'm sure yeah well and, and so that's that's where i'm going with this there's there's a big difference between rational analytical intelligence and emotional uh-huh. intelligence and when you get into dealing with psychological issues and substance abuse issues, there's that emotional intelligence that has to kick in. And a lot of times for a lot of people, and I know this is an issue for me with, you know, just emotional issues, my rational analytical intelligence overrides my emotional intelligence where it's, you know, if if I'm, I, I deal with depression and anxiety. And if I am just having a really bad, day where I'm feeling overly anxious and all mm-hmm. that, I I end up making it worse because I get in my own head of being analytical of there's no reason you should feel like this. Why are you doing this? And it's it overrides that emotional intelligence. Did you kind of experience that issue? Well, I think that I'm probably more uh, 
I'm less emotionally grow. Uh, my emotional growth is probably more stunted than, uh, and so that's what tends to kick in for me is like this very emotional reaction to things. So I, mm-hmm. I'm where I, I work by a, by day. I am super analytical in terms of what I do. And so I have to really focus to calm down and actually get to the point where like what you say is like saying like, I have no reason to feel this way. Like my initial reaction is like full speed ahead with emotion. Like, ah, so I have to like bring that voice in. So that, so that's, that's, that's a better way of explaining it. Yeah. The emotion overrides it, but I've got that nagging analytical in my voice telling me I like shouldn't right. feel that way, but the emotions just, you know, it's a five-year-old throwing yeah. a temper tantrum and, or, you know, kid lost his balloon so he feels sorry for himself yes i mean that's something that overrides everything and and my intelligence is telling me that is my harshest critic telling me you're an idiot for feeling this way why are you feeling this way which in turn exacerbates the emotional reaction yeah and it's like there's definitely a balance and how do you find it that's something that i struggle with is you know i want Mm -hmm. to have my way all the time so I'm very selfish in that in that way. And I think for me also, then that's something where drinking just makes it worse because I know that if I like something a little bit, I'm going to want it a lot. You're going to like it. Yeah. Um, if I'm drunk, then my response isn't going to be tempered by any type of analytics um, where I actually say like level of response that I give equal to <laughs> you, you shut that part of your brain down from people around me. Uh, yeah. Well, yeah. And I th- so I think that's where a lot of that comes in, especially with creative people is with substance abuse and things like that is you've got an overactive mind. You've got an overactive imagination. You, that voice in your head is always uh-huh. going and you're trying to find that way to quiet it. Right. Absolutely. And, and so it's that, not knowing how to deal with that emotional intelligence that gets in the way and leads you to try to find a, and I don't think this is a good term for it, but it's the only thing leads you to try to find a solution to quiet mm-hmm. it, which leads to that unhealthy. Yeah. Pattern. And I think that's that you're hitting it all on the head in my mind, but it's all, that's why they call it self medicating. <laughs> you're, you're trying to fix this thing. And I don't think that, turn around then and I take antidepressants, but like you don't necessarily just because you self-medicate doesn't mean you have to then turn around and medicate, but, um, right. Finding a calm, finding something that works for you, finding something that doesn't, isn't destructive to your body or to your relationships. That's really important. And so whether it's alcohol or marijuana or some other drug of abuse that if you're doing something and it seems to be, you're doing it to feel satisfied or you're doing it so that you can tolerate the fact that you're not accomplishing something and it's taking away from your ability to be, to move forward and be creative. Like that's where I think people really have to stop and say, why do I have this relationship here? And why is, why am I letting this substance sort of dictate when I can be happy and what, what I can do? Mm -hmm. And I think it's harder to do than it is to say, of course. Um, 
Oh, yeah. But maybe you know, things that people try, something that I do, but I've done even while I abused alcohol is running. But, you know, exercise mm-hmm. releases those endorphins and weightlifting, but also meditation and just trying to find this sort of calm. And I don't think I wouldn't go into it thinking you can find the perfect calm and I don't meditate on a regular basis, but I know that a lot of people avoid it saying like, oh, I can't quiet my brain. Well, I don't think anybody can. I, I've, I had started it a long time ago um, before I got back into going to therapy and I just, I couldn't quiet my brain long enough. So I, emotional intelligence comes back in. I would beat myself up about that. And then I started going back to therapy and, you know, my therapist was like, well, don't worry about meditation, worry about mindfulness. And those are two different things. I mean, they're, they're very much in the same Mm -hmm. line, but it's, you know, the mindfulness is you just focus on one thing at a time where the meditation is you're trying to push everything out. Um, And then just recently there's a book by Dan Harris, um, called 10% Happier. Do you know who Dan Harris yeah, is? He actually, was, um, okay, I think he's got a podcast the, or something too. Yeah, yeah, he just started a podcast. Um, yeah, he's the guy who was on, uh, I think it's I ABC. I the Creative South podcast though. Exactly. Um, no, I listen to the podcast. I, <laughs> I encourage people to listen to podcasts um, so we can all not make money. Uh, <laughs> um, but it was really interesting because, and, and I think for people who, have issues with that because he talks about he had substance abuse okay. issues he had gone uh you know he he'd been addicted to cocaine he um he was never much of a drinker um so he's which i i find odd not that he was not much of a drinker but he's talks about it in his book because he's still in, able to enjoy a glass of yeah. wine and i know for i know for a lot of people and i i'm fairly certain most substance abuse um, therapists would not recommend that you do that, but you know, I, I, if it works for him, that's fine. But, um, he talks about, you know, while he got sober and all these things, he still had that overactive mind and he still had those problems until he started kind of meditating and things like that. But his book is really good because it cuts through all the hippy dippy uh-huh. bullshit where it's, you know, patchouli oil and <laughs> beads and, you know, tantric mantras and all that. And it's just like, stop worrying about trying to do it for two hours. Focus on doing it for two minutes. And then if you can do it for two minutes, the next day, try to do it for five minutes and and grow from there. Um, So it was interesting. I lost my train of thought where I was going with that. I was talking about the book so much. It's, It's interesting to approach it from that way. And I think for me, you know, since you mentioned the meditation that that has helped me quiet my inner voice of not looking at it and trying to beat myself up when I can't accomplish it. Just focus on that one thing for two minutes. And if I can do two minutes, then the next time it flares up five minutes and kind of trying to grow from there and quiet that. voice. I think that approach is a really intelligent approach to take for any kind of behavior change because of how difficult it is to change your behavior mm-hmm. that it's it's so cliche it's disgusting but you know every journey begins with the first step kind of thing like you can't have uh-huh. one hour of sobriety until you've had one minute and going from there you can't have two days until you've had one and and it's just linearly things happen chronologically 
like that because that's how time works. So mm-hmm. you have to have you have to do something for for the timer to start and then go from right. there. Whether if it's two minutes of meditation and then it's two minutes and thirty seconds, like you are progressively doing something. You're on this journey and, and if you have this sort of eye on the prize, but then at the same time understanding that you're not gonna get there the next day, I think that that's a helpful mindset to have. Yeah. Well, and I think with especially with mental health, realizing that you may never get to the exact point that you want to and not beating yourself up. Yeah, for that. exactly. Because and, and I, I think it's I actually think it's a good thing to not get to that exact point that you want to, because that <laughs> that if you reach that end goal of my life's going to be perfect. You're going to stop learning and trying to figure out other things. Sure. And what would it be like to be there? I'm done. <laughs> I'm perfect. Yeah. Kind of yeah, boring. I yeah. And I think the same way about just general life goals, which is like, you know, when I'm doing things, I feel like they're so important, but I'm like, there's always going to be other goals that, that come up and either trump this or I've found for myself, as soon as I accomplish a goal, like it's on to the next thing. It's not like I'm going to mm-hmm. do that victory lap where I don't think about, wanting to accomplish anything for a couple months, like, no, get my PhD immediately roll into like, what job do I want? And where do I want to do it? Get a book deal immediately go into, well, maybe now I need to write two books, whatever. Like, so it's not, I'll never be satisfied. I know that. And and in some ways, just like you said, though, it's a good thing because it means I'm always going to work on myself. I'm always going to have goals that are Mm -hmm. farther out there in the future that when I do accomplish them, it'll be like, okay, well, all this stuff that you learn along the way has now prepared you for the next larger goal or the, the task. Right. Very philosophical. Well, thank Jason. I, I didn't know we were going to do yeah, this so I know. early in the morning. <laughs> I know you, you'd think we'd been up all night drinking the way we're talking. <laughs> you can still have the situations and even without the alcohol, isn't that? <laughs> exactly. As long as you don't lose your Just sense of humor sleep about deprived and then pump yourself full of caffeine. Same exact thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's a poor man's speedball. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, I will set you free into the wild real quickly. Where can um, people find you I'm online? Easy enough to find in the wild. I pretty much snagged my name at every location I could find it. So I'm at Victor Yako on Twitter, and that's V-I-C-T-O-R-Y-O-C-C-O. Um, my website is victoryako.com and just have a lot of links to the articles that I've written and some other information about my book, which is designed for the mind and it should be released in mid-May. It's currently available for pre-order and you get access to the early access version on manning.com. Um, and, and we'll post notes to this in the uh, show notes or links to it in the show you notes. You can also always email me, which is just victoryako at gmail.com, V-I-C-T-O-R-Y-O-C-C-O at gmail.com. And if you take the time to send me a message, I will take the time to reply. And yeah, I mean, I've really enjoyed having this discussion with you and coming on the show. I'm always looking for opportunities to talk about both psychology and design and alcohol, both in design and tech and just as a broader societal mm-hmm. thing. So if there are ever any opportunities, feel free to reach out to me and let me know. Oh yeah, definitely. I'd, I'd love to have you back on sometime. Awesome. Cool. So we end every podcast by saying, go out and hug All some right. necks, which is uh, kind of a Southern Baptist church sort of thing of, 
you know, when you go to church and turn around, everybody shakes hands. A lot of times they'll say, turn around and hug right. some necks. So would you mind taking no us out? No problem. All right, everybody, I want you to go out and hug some necks. Thanks, Rick. Thank Jason. For tuning in this week. You can find out more about Victor at victoryako.com or follow him at victoryako on Twitter. And be sure to check out the show notes for more links to Victor's writings. You can keep up with the podcast on Twitter at Creative SO Pod and follow Creative South on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Creative South GA or over at CreativeSouthGA.com. And I'm at Jay Frostholm on Dribble, Twitter, and Instagram. If you want to engage with the podcast more, check out a new podcasting app called Remarks that allows you to add notes and comments about the episodes, get feedback from other listeners, and hear from me as well. You can find it over at remarks.fm. And if you like the Creative Stuff podcast, head over to iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play Music. Rate us and leave a review. This helps more people find the podcast and allows us to keep getting awesome guests. Now go out and hug some next. <laughs>